Well, today's reading comes from Ezra chapter 9 to chapter 10, verse 17. After these things had been done, the leaders came to me and said, The people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighbouring peoples with their detestable practices, like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians and Amorites. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled hair from my head and beard, and sat down, appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles. And I sat there, appalled, until the evening sacrifice. Then at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my self-abasement, with my tunic and cloak torn, and fell on my knees, with hands spread out to the Lord my God, and prayed, O my God, I am too ashamed and disgraced to lift up my face to you, my God, because our sins are higher than our heads, and our guilt has reached to the heavens. From the days of our forefathers until now, our guilt has been great. Because of our sins, we and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and captivity to pillage and humiliation at the hand of foreign kings as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in his sanctuary, so our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief in our bondage. Though we are slaves, our God has not deserted us in our bondage. He has shown us kindness in the sight of the kings of Persia. He has granted us new life to rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins, and he has given us a wall of protection in Judah and Jerusalem. But now, O our God, what can we say after this? For we have disregarded the commands you gave through your servants, the prophets, when you said, The land you are entering to possess is a land polluted by the corruption of its peoples. By their detestable practices, they have filled it with their impurity from one end to the other. Therefore, do not give your daughters in marriage to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them at any time, that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it to your children as an everlasting inheritance. What has happened to us is a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt. And yet, our God, you have punished us less than our sins have deserved and have given us a remnant like this. Shall we again break your commands and intermarry with the peoples who commit such detestable practices? Would you not be angry enough with us to destroy us, leaving us no remnant or survivor? O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant. Here we are before you in our guilt, though because of it not one of us can stand in your presence. While Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men, women and children, gathered around him. They too wept bitterly. Then Shechaniah, son of Jehiel, one of the descendants of Elam, said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples around us. But in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. Now let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and their children in accordance with the counsel of my Lord and of those who fear the commands of our God. Let it be done according to the law. Rise up, this matter is in your hands. We will support you, so take courage and do it. So Ezra rose up and put the leading priests and Levites and all Israel under oath to do what had been suggested, and they took the oath. 
Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the room of Jehonanan, son of Eliashib. While he was there, he ate no food and drank no water, because he continued to mourn over the unfaithfulness of the exiles. A proclamation was then issued throughout Judah and Jerusalem for all the exiles to assemble in Jerusalem. Anyone who failed to appear within three days would forfeit all his property in accordance with the decision of the officials and elders and would himself be expelled from the assembly of the exiles. Within three days, all the men of Judah and Benjamin had gathered in Jerusalem. And on the 20th day of the ninth month, all the people were sitting in the square before the house of God, greatly distressed by the occasion and because of the rain. Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have been unfaithful. You have married foreign women, adding to Israel's guilt. Now make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples around you and from your foreign wives. The whole assembly responded with a loud voice. You were right. We must do as you say. But there are many people here and it is the rainy season, so we cannot stand outside. Besides, this matter cannot be taken care of in a day or two because we have sinned greatly in this thing. Let our officials act for the whole assembly. Then let everyone in our towns who have married a foreign woman come at a set time, along with the elders and judges of each town, until the fierce anger of our God in this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan, son of Asahel, and Josiah, son of Tikvah, supported by Meshulam and Shabbatai the Levite, opposed this. So the exiles did as was proposed. Ezra the priest selected men who were family heads, one from each family division, and all of them designated by name. On the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to investigate the cases, and by the first day of the first month, they finished dealing with all the men who had married foreign women. This is the word of the Lord. Well, do keep your Bibles open in uh, Ezra chapters 9 and 10, and why don't we uh, ask for God's help as we, as we take a closer look at these words. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who we can trust. Uh, help us to even obey you as we uh, come to your word this morning. Uh, please would you use this time for your purposes. Uh, please strengthen our faith. In Jesus' name, amen. There was a movie released in 2016 with a slightly strange name. It was called Loving. And it's uh, based on a true story about Richard and Mildred Loving. Uh, it's set in the late 1950s and it depicts their marriage. Uh, Richard was a European-American and Mildred had a mix of Native American and African-American heritage. And in Virginia at the time, interracial marriages were illegal. The Lovings had to travel over 100 miles to, to Washington, D.C. so that they could be married. But not long after their return, they were arrested and forced to leave Virginia to avoid being imprisoned. And it wasn't until 1967 that the, the laws eventually changed, allowing interracial marriages in all the states. And for many people, they can't believe that this kind of law was prevalent less than 60 years ago. There's understandable outrage that it could take place, uh, that, it, that it could take people that long uh, to work it out. And there can be similar outrage when we look at passages such as the one we're looking at this morning. 
outrage that God's people appear to be condemned for marrying foreigners. Outrage that their solution to this situation is to send away foreign women and children, to kick them out, uh, to have nothing more to do with them. How do we make sense of a passage that seems so out of step with the world that we live in? And doesn't it go directly against what we see taught in the New Testament? Think of Jesus' uh, words in Matthew chapter 10. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Or think of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 7. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer, and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is is not a believer, and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. If, If marriage is something instituted by God, surely God's people got it wrong in our passage today. Isn't their solution, sending away wives and children, much, much, much more sinful than what they've already done? Doesn't it go against what we see in the Bible regarding divorce? Well, I think all of these are valid questions that the passage raises for us this morning. But we see that at the heart of these two chapters, and even at the heart of where the book of Ezra has been heading, is the importance of repentance in the life of God's people. Repentance is a word that Jesus uses to, to call people to change their hearts and, and their minds, uh, to change actions and attitudes, uh, a turning away from sin and towards God. And we see how God's people do that in these two chapters today. Uh, this week, as it's been said by Miriam, we're, we're finishing this series in the book of Ezra, and it certainly finishes in a, in a somewhat bizarre note. The last 26 verses, which, which weren't read this morning, Uh, are a list of names of the people who married foreign women. That's how the book ends. A list of names almost shaming those who had acted in this way. Uh, But I hope that by the end of our time we'll see these last two chapters are actually a a fitting conclusion to the book. Uh, We'll look at the passage in in three different parts. Uh, The three things that happen that that show us the importance of repentance. Uh, Firstly, acknowledgement of sin. Uh, Secondly, confession to God. And thirdly, separation from sin. So we'll work our way through the passage in a moment. Uh, If you haven't been with us, uh, we've seen Ezra as a book about the restoration of God's people. Broadly speaking, chapters 1 to 6 have been about external restoration as the people returned to Jerusalem and the temple of God there was rebuilt. And chapters 7 to 10 are about this internal restoration as God's word uh, to his people is proclaimed by Ezra and as their lives are profoundly changed by it uh, as we'll see in the passage. We've heard that Ezra was sent to Jerusalem to teach God's people and it's been roughly four months since since Ezra arrived and the second uh, group of exiles got back to Jerusalem with him and in these four months we assume Ezra would have been teaching the people from the law that God gave them opening it up uh, with them and reminding them of how God had called them to live. Uh, So we pick up the action in in chapter 9. And the first thing we see is this acknowledgement of sin. Uh, The leaders initiate a conversation with Ezra 
Uh, it's the kind of conversation that they must have been dreading. Uh, I'm sure you'll know that feeling when you're about to tell someone you've done something wrong. You feel knots in your stomach. Your mind is consumed by it. You worry about how they're going to respond. You worry about the consequences. And sometimes you even try and talk yourself out of it. Now, I imagine the leaders would have had a lot of those feelings. They know they've done wrong, but they go to Ezra and they acknowledge what they, what they have done is wrong. And the key issue is that they haven't kept themselves separate from the neighbouring peoples. The people realise they've disobeyed God in this way. Now, look at verse 2. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the kicker is there at the end of the verse. The leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. Leadership implies responsibility, and and anyone in a position of leadership will know that. Because what you do and and what you tell others to do impacts, impacts their lives. And that's why Ezra responds to this confession in the way he does in verses 3 and 4. Tearing his tunic and cloak and, and pulling his hair from his head and his beard. He is absolutely appalled uh, by what has happened. And he sits there the whole day, almost in shock as he thinks about it. But I must say, what, what the Israelites did in acknowledging their sin would have taken courage. It's very hard to admit when you've done something so wrong. Uh, and I think that's why people often uh, struggle when they're caught doing something wrong. That they still won't admit that it's wrong. They'll, they'll blame others or they'll come up with excuses or ex- explanations to justify what they've done. The people do what they should uh, when they see their sin. And I hope uh, we are also going to be men and women who, who find the courage to acknowledge our sin when the word of God convicts us. There can be no turning from sin if there's not acknowledgement of sin. And that's the first thing we see, the the acknowledgement of sin. The next thing that that helps us see the importance of repentance is confession to God. And we see it through Ezra's prayer in verses 5 to 16. And I think we see Ezra do two main things in this section. Uh, He confesses all of their failings to God, and and he also recognises God's mercy to them. He falls to his knees in prayer, uh, firstly, he confess, confesses their failings. Uh, look, at, look at some of the language that he uses. Sin, guilt, shame, humiliation, captivity, disregard, evil deeds. These are all things that Ezra recognises that they have done and, and brought upon themselves. Their defeat, their exile. Uh, this isn't just something recent. This, is, this has been going on for generations since the days of their forefathers. And, and there's something appealing about this, this prayer of Ezra. It's as if he's, he's drawing a line in the sand. These are the ways we've failed you, God. You warned us about the nations in the land and, and about their detestable practices. You warned us not to marry them. You warned us not to make a treaty with them. But we thought we knew better. And the end of verse 15 sums up their failings. Here we are before you in our guilt though because of it, not one of us can stand in your presence. The second thing that uh, we we see in this prayer is God's mercy. Uh, But from verse 8, he acknowledges how God has acted towards the people. God has been gracious. He's given them relief. 
He hasn't deserted them. He, he hasn't, uh, he's left them a remnant. Uh, he's given them the temple. He's shown them kindness, granted them new life, and protected them. And Ezra can't quite believe that, that God hasn't completely destroyed them yet. Can you think of any relationship where, where one person could act in, in such a way towards the other and, and still maintain that relationship? Breaking their trust on a regular basis, uh, disregarding what they say, being repeatedly unfaithful. Any marriage, any friendship. Imagine a, a child treating a parent that way. There's no way uh, it would be tolerated. See, what baffles Ezra and, and what should stand out to us here as well is that God, hasn't pun- uh, God has punished them less than they deserve. We see it in verse 13. Uh, for some reason, he's shown them mercy. And as Christians today, we know that God has been even more merciful with us. He's, he's spared us from facing his wrath because Jesus willingly went to the cross on our behalf. Uh, I'm always stunned by how quickly uh, I can take that for granted in, in my life. See, Ezra's prayer is one that helps us recognize the ways God has been merciful to his people. And it's, it's something that we can do ourselves. We can stop and think about the ways that God has shown us mercy. Confess your sin and, and recognize God's mercy. Uh, if we do these things, we won't take for granted what we now have in our Lord Jesus. And so Ezra prays, and, and the people join him outside the house of God. Uh, it's a great reminder of how fortunate they are to be where they are. And as we get to chapter 10, we see the final thing that helps us to understand what it, what it looks like to repent. We see a separation from sin. The people make a covenant with Ezra and, and promise to send away the foreign women and children. Uh, they all gather together, and all but four, per, uh, four people, got there in the end, uh, agree to send away the wives in the hope that God's fierce anger would be turned away from them regarding this. Uh, and this is the part of the passage that I think many people wrestle with uh, the most. Was this really the right thing to do? I want to suggest that, that God's people did the right thing at this time. Uh, the first reason being the text doesn't give us any reason to think that it's wrong. It doesn't condemn their actions. Uh, the second reason is to do with the law. Remember, Israel at this point of time only had God's uh, law to them as the word. That's all they had. The, the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Uh, the call was to let it be done according to the law. The law is clear about why they shouldn't marry people from these surrounding nations. Uh, here are some of the reasons we see in, in those books. Leviticus 18 warns against incestuous behavior for, uh, of these neighboring uh, nations. Deuteronomy 13 warns against worshipping false gods. And Deuteronomy 18 warns against the practice of, of burning children as sacrifices. These are some of uh, the most detestable despicable things that, that these nations were practicing. And these are some of the reasons why God warned against marrying people from these foreign nations. They risk being corrupted by them, and they risk God's anger against them. Now you might be thinking, actually this, this passage, it, it seems a little bit racist. Uh, they're deciding who they should or shouldn't marry based on where they come from. But we know from elsewhere in, in Scripture that, that that's not the case. Uh, Moses married Zipporah, who was a woman from Midian, uh, who were the enemies of God's people. 
And God seemingly never had an issue with that. Or there's Boaz who married Ruth, uh, who was from Moab. Uh, Moab being one of the places uh, with these detestable practices, which was listed in in verse 1 of chapter 9. So I don't think it's a a, a racial thing in Ezra. Ruth and and Zipporah turned to God and were shown mercy. And if the foreign wives had, had done that, I imagine they too would have been shown mercy. But they've continued to follow false gods who call on them to do these despicable things. And God doesn't want that for his people. And the people finally acknowledge that and and confess that they were wrong. God's people do do the right thing here. They they separate themselves from these sinful practices. How do you respond when God shows you that the way you're living is wrong? That you're clearly sinning against him? Perhaps it's past sin that you haven't really acknowledged or confessed to God. Maybe it's sin that you're currently struggling with. Actions, behaviours, careless words. Uh, Perhaps it's your attitude towards others. Perhaps it's a, a temptation to live a double life, as a number of the Israelites in this passage were doing. Claiming to live for God in positions of leadership, but also continuing to live in open sin, as if God didn't care. Or perhaps you're like those people, uh, those four people in chapter 10, verse 15, who refuse uh, to repent. God may be patient with us now, uh, but there is a day when that patience will run out. And if we continue to ignore the warning to repent, uh, we will get what we deserve. God's judgment will consume us for eternity. The majority of of God's people recognise their unfaithfulness, but uh, you see in chapter 10, verse 2, that they also recognise that there is still hope. And that's one of the the most unique things about the Christian faith. Even at the, the lowest points of our lives, Jesus is there to offer us hope. And some of us here will have experienced those extreme low points that that bring our uh, that, that our sin brings us to some of us will be steeped in sin and and feeling guilt uh, and shame even as i speak the feeling that there's no way forward but but what is true for the exiles is true for us if you're still here there is hope there's still a chance for you to turn from your sin our god is is not only the one who sent his son into this world and and called on all people to repent. He's also the one who provides the means by which we we can repent and find forgiveness. And that, of course, is through the the precious blood of his son, shed for our sin that that many may be saved. See, repentance is the the culmination of the book of Ezra. It's a high point. uh, It's the high point of this time. The list of names of, of, of people guilty of intermarriage. Uh, When you think about it, it's no longer a a list of shame. It's a list of people who chose to repent, whose names will be written in the book of life. And if we uh, are those who continue to repent and who turn to Jesus in faith, uh, our names will be there with them. No matter how outrageous our, our sin may seem to us, no matter how outrageous it may seem to others, God promises that we we will find forgiveness when we come to him and and when we ask. 
this assurance is something that, that we struggle to believe at times, and it's something that Martin Luther picked up on in a poem he wrote. Now let me read it. Feelings come and feelings go, and, and feelings are deceiving. My warrant is the word of God, naught else is worth believing. Though all my heart should feel condemned for want of some sweet token, there is one greater than my heart whose word cannot be broken. See, God promises in his word that he will forgive us if we turn to him. Uh, are you someone who knows that? There, there are two uh, final things, small things I want to say regarding marriage as we close. Uh, firstly, this, is, this passage shows us the importance of, of marrying someone who is a, a Christian. If you are a Christian and you're thinking about marrying someone, make sure they also love the Lord. Uh, we've been doing these short bios in the, in the newsletter, uh, getting to know people in our congregation. And I noticed in uh, today's bio, the gentleman interviewed mentioned that his, his late wife wouldn't have married him had he not been a Christian. Uh, and that's a wise thing on, on her part. Now, now, thankfully, Vic Smith loves the Lord Jesus. Uh, but don't, don't compromise your faith by marrying someone who, who doesn't share that faith. Uh, I know of once faithful Christians who have compromised in that way uh, and who are now really struggling in their marriages and in their faith because they're essentially uh, living for completely different things. If you're going to get married, marry a believer who loves the Lord. Secondly, if, if you're already married to someone who doesn't yet believe, uh, keep going in your marriage. There are many Christians who are married to people who, who don't currently believe in the Lord Jesus, who don't trust in him. Uh, remember, we, we have all of God's word to us. Uh, our marriages are, are binding before God. Let not man separate what God has joined together. Marriage is the two becoming one. And so if you, if you find yourself in that position, uh, then I hope we as a church and, and as your brothers and sisters in Christ are encouraging you to, to keep honouring God by persevering in your marriage. Uh, I know there will be times where that may seem impossible and, and it may well be, uh, but I'm glad God is with us through those times and I hope you uh, know his presence with you and that you know that he, he shows us grace and forgiveness even when we fail in our marriages. Well, if you're thinking of, of getting married, marry a Christian. If you're already married to a not-yet-believer, keep being faithful. Uh, two things for us to, to hold together that I think uh, need to be said in light of, in light of the passage. So, so that's the book of Ezra. External restoration, but more importantly, internal restoration through the Word of God. Uh, acknowledge your sin, confess it to God, Separate yourself from it. May we know the forgiveness of Jesus and, and may we know the change, the change that Jesus alone can bring. Amen.